John 18, 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken, to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born. And for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him, saying, Hail, king of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. May God bless the reading and now the preaching of his word. Amen. Where do your allegiances lie? We take pledges to countries and associations. We wear hats and jerseys for teams. The outside, what we say and do and show to the world, reveals the inside, our commitments and our allegiances. The most important of these, and in many ways the most visible, is the commitment that a person has either to the kingdoms of this world or to the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. But what kind of kingdoms are these? And what differences will it make to be committed to one or to the other? Pilate begins in verse 33 by asking Jesus if he's even a king at all. The Jewish leaders have accused him of claiming a kingship that is in opposition to the Roman government. If Pilate is thinking as they think, that Jesus' aim is an earthly kingdom for the Jewish people, Jesus would need to straighten that out. But it's clear to both of them that he's not that king at all. 
The evidence against these charges of political conspiracy is overwhelming. He did not resist arrest or set his followers against the Roman soldiers. He told Peter to stand down. He healed the servant's ear. This is hardly the response of someone looking to overthrow the Roman emperor. Yes, Pilate, Jesus is a king. But he's a categorically different kind of king than what his accusers had claimed. What he says and does, just as with everyone else in the passage, those are what reveal the kind of kingdom to which he's committed. He says in verse 36, his kingship is not of this world. It's of a spiritual world. It's a kingship of truth in the hearts of those who hear him and believe him. But he also says his kingdom is not from this world. He's not a king because he conquered or received an earthly kingdom. He was, as another teacher wrote, born king from the ivory palaces of heaven. He descended into a sin-cursed world to testify that to which he himself had heard from the Father. Jesus isn't out to destroy the kingdom of Rome. He's out to destroy the kingdom of lies and of death and the devil. And just as with everyone else in this passage, what he says and does reveals his commitments. The effects of these kingship commitments are evident all throughout this exchange. This section of John is actually textually pretty interesting because the pace picks up very rapidly compared with the rest of the book. And John is writing here as an author who assumes that his readers have already read the other Gospels. He starts becoming comfortable omitting details by assuming that you already know them. Here he leaves out the specific charges that the Jews bring against Jesus. Pilate asks the question in verse 9. John doesn't give the answer. You find the details in Luke. And while John includes Jesus and Pilate's conversation, he leaves out the information about who gave him those details. He leaves out what's going on with Pilate between verses 38 and 39. We go to Matthew to read about the messenger who brings this news of Pilate's wife and the dream she has and the superstitions. None of these details are unimportant. But John, assuming that you read the other accounts, makes choices about what to include and what to omit in direct response to the specific message and emphasis and approach to the gospel that the Holy Spirit has given him. And what John does include in this section has the effect of highlighting the different ways we can identify a commitment to an earthly kingdom or to Jesus' own spiritual kingdom. I think we're missing out on John's unique contribution if we don't see what he's doing with this. First, for those who focus on earthly kingdoms, externals matter more than internals. John's trademark irony is in peak form in verse 28. Look how careful the Jewish leaders are to obey the ceremonial laws around purification. They won't even go into Pilate's house. They don't want to be defiled. Meanwhile, they're executing a sinful plan to manipulate Pilate into the murder of Jesus, the innocent one. 
Remember when Charlie Brown complains about people who are missing the real meaning of Christmas? I think these guys may have missed the real meaning of Passover. (laughs) One author puts it rather bluntly. He says the Sanhedrin apparently regarded ceremonial defilement as much more serious than moral defilement. Once Jesus is hanging on a cross, then they'll go home and eat the Passover lamb. But that's how it is. Those who are committed to earthly kingdoms care more about the externals, more about what people see than the internals, what's happening in the heart. What other people think about us or presume to be true about us is more important than what's actually true about us. Which is more important? Who people think you are or who you are? The Jewish leaders are willing to prosecute Jesus by any means necessary. Because the kingdoms of this world believe that the end does justify the means. What we do matters more than how we do it. Pilate begins by asking them to present the specific charges they have against Jesus. It's not unusual. That's how a real trial works. Bring the charges But the Jews had already judged Jesus as guilty. They'd already settled on the correct outcome. And what they wanted now was simply for Pilate to sign off on it. This is supposed to look like a trial. It isn't supposed to be a trial. Trials are concerned with arriving at the truth by just means. Their concern is the preservation of the kingdom to which they are committed. Now, it would be unseemly to say it that bluntly. You've got to keep up appearances. But come on, Pilate. We all know how this needs to end. That's why they framed the case the way they did. Pilate doesn't care that Jesus represents an existential threat to a way of life for the Jewish rulers. Their kingdom is not Pilate's concern. But he does care about the security of the Roman Empire, his kingdom. So that's the charge they bring. Jesus is a threat to your kingdom. They knew that Jesus was no threat to Rome, but they framed the case this way to make it easy for Pilate to get involved. But then when that doesn't work, they just change their approach, and then they change it again. The means that get us to the conviction doesn't matter. We've just got to put him to death. They've determined that they can sin and they can lie to accomplish the greater good, whatever it takes. Even today, in our hearts, we say, I know this outcome will be better. I just have to do what it takes to get there. In our hearts, we say, God wants me to be happy, or God wants me to provide. We justify sin, claiming that it's necessary in the pursuit of what is otherwise God's will. But this is never how it works in the kingdom of God. Christ never calls his followers to break his law so that they can keep his law. These complex schemes, these tiresome machinations we invent are not in service to his kingdom. They're to justify on the outside the commitment to the kingdom of self that has the love of our insides. Jesus has it much easier. He's committed to the kingdom of God 
So he can simply tell the truth. I found out when I was a kid, it takes way more work to lie than to tell the truth. You have to keep all the parts of your story straight. You have to remember who you told and what you told them. And as adults, we create these complicated schemes of of half-truths and innuendos and what will let other people believe. Jesus can simply tell the truth. He can represent himself on the outside exactly as he is inside. It's one of the ways that the kingdom of God is so freeing. The masks that we wear, the schemes we develop in order to deceive, the show that we put on to fool others, aren't they ultimately an exhausting way of life? And it's completely unnecessary for those who are in Christ. In Christ's kingdom, We don't have to pretend to be better than we are. We are clean by faith. We don't have to put on a show pretending to be accepted by God. We have full acceptance in Christ. We don't have to hide from God. We don't have to put on a display for others. When our our allegiance is to the kingdom of Christ rather than to the kingdoms of this world, We can rest. We can rest content in what God has made and declared us to be in Christ. We can leave behind these heavy burdens of appearance and acceptance in what other people want to think about us. Second, for those whose allegiance is to earthly kingdoms, fear of man will overshadow commitment to the truth. Pilate is the best example in this passage. He is very much a man of the kingdoms of this world. He's the governor of an imperial province, reports directly to the emperor. Pilate's life is well documented inside and outside of scripture. Pretty much everybody agrees that he was a stubborn, brutal, and proud man. And he especially hated the Jews for the trouble he believed they caused him with the emperor. That's why he loved to humiliate them. But he was also afraid, afraid of what they could do to him in retaliation, afraid of what news would make it back to the emperor to make his life harder and his power more at risk. That's why Pilate's search for the truth in this narrative is not nearly as strong as his efforts to just get rid of the situation in any way possible. He's torn because on the one hand, he hated the Jews and he didn't want to give them what they wanted. But on the other, he sure didn't want news of any trouble in his province making its way back to the emperor. At moments in the story, he's clearly trying to humiliate the Jewish leaders. He strongly disagrees with their verdict. But ultimately, he gives them exactly what they want. He knows it's wrong. He doesn't want to do it. Why does he do it? Brothers and sisters, this is what fear of man looks like. He doesn't hesitate to abandon the truth if it preserves his own political power. Learning the truth was easy. He learned it from Jesus in a couple of sentences. All the work that Pilate has to do in the story, all the stress that he feels and the angst in his life is not because of the truth. It's because he's committed 
to what other people think about him more than he's committed to the truth. That's all the work he has to do. He knows what's true. But standing in the truth doesn't make you popular. And in this case, it doesn't serve his interest when everyone else is against it. His allegiance is to the kingdom of this world. And in those kingdoms, men rather than God are the measure of what matters. Look at how he measures kingship and significance. He says to Jesus with contempt, are you the king of the Jews? He thinks even the suggestion is ridiculous. Jesus doesn't look like a king or act like a king. He didn't defend himself with violence. And though Pilate knows Jesus is innocent, Jesus won't even say here whatever it takes to get off the hook and force Pilate to set him free. By all of Pilate's measures, Jesus is just pathetic. Later in the passage, that's how he'll present Jesus to the crowds. He figured that maybe if he showed them a really pathetic Jesus, that by the world's standards, they would realize this guy is no threat, that he's not someone to fear. He's not someone to honor. He's just someone they should let go free. It's funny, Pilate wanted them to do what was right. He wanted Jesus to be set free. He affirms Jesus' innocence. But Pilate's allegiances don't allow him to simply stand in that truth. Instead, he has to do what makes him look strong, what won't agitate his enemies, what is most likely to end well for him with the approval of the people. In the kingdom of God, it's truth that matters. Jesus is the truth. He came full of grace and truth. His followers worship in spirit and in truth. The truth will set them free. The Father sanctifies his people in truth. His word is truth. Jesus tells Pilate here, I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens my voice. What he's doing is giving Pilate an opportunity to hear the truth and to respond. What does Pilate do? He turns away. Whether he doesn't believe in truth or doesn't care about truth, the effect is the same. The truth is standing in front of him, offering to him the kingdom of God. Pilate could lay down all of his burdens, all of this stress, all of this work, the facade that he's trying to keep up, pleasing all of these different groups, the scheming and the machinations, the guilt. All of it could be laid down in service to the kingdom of God. But Pilate turns away, fully committed to the kingdoms of this world. Sad because he knows what's true. He says it three times. Three times he says, I find no guilt in him. He knows Jesus is innocent. This is how powerful is the fear of man. And in the kingdoms of this world, it is a far greater motivator than the power of truth. That's why Pilate's behavior is so erratic in this passage. He is emotionally wrenched. He just said Jesus is not guilty, but instead of releasing him, he has him flogged. 
He's thinking maybe that will satisfy the bloodlust. Maybe that will be enough to please the people. But it's not. It doesn't. So then he offers them Jesus' release as part of the Passover custom. He basically tells the Jews directly to pick Jesus over Barabbas. He's the one who coordinated this pairing precisely because he thought it would be obvious that the pathetic and beaten Jesus compared with the insurrectionist murderer Barabbas, which one will they choose? He heard them, or he certainly heard of them, lining the streets, crying Hosanna. And he cannot imagine that at this point they would cry out, give us Barabbas. Pilate thinks to himself, what else could I possibly do to get these people to do the right thing, to free Jesus? But the answer, of course, is that he could just stand with the truth and free Jesus. He could just be more committed to truth than to fear of man. He's not been deceived by the Sanhedrin's schemes. He's not fooled by this. He knows Christ is innocent, but in the end, fear of the Sanhedrin and fear of the emperor win out. And so he says, what is truth? Especially when compared with the power of the world to make my life miserable. We also see fear of man on display and the cruelty that the soldiers have toward Christ. This kind of spiraling brutality happens even today among military units and lots of other kinds of groups. The mob violence we hear about. And it's because for many, fitting in with the crowd matters more than standing up for what's right. It's the same fear of man that Pilate has. What they're supposed to do is flog Jesus. And it's likely that what Pilate calls for here isn't even the most brutal form. Here, it's mostly for show. It's try to arouse sympathy for Jesus from the crowd. It's after Jesus is sentenced to crucifixion that he gets the real brutal form of flogging. But some of those soldiers, some, want to torture and mock Jesus. And so they all do. They make a crown of thorns, taking the representative curse of thorns from Genesis 3 and placing it on the head of him who would bear that curse for us. They find the, the military cloak in purple, the colors of royalty, and they wrap it around him. And then they form a line as though they were coming to pay homage to a king. Hail, king of the Jews. And then they strike him in the face in humiliation and violence. Many of us have done enough reading about historical atrocities to know that in groups like this, very few of the individuals involved would act with such cruelty on their own. What happens in a group like this is that fitting in matters more than standing up for what's right. And that's when all kinds of otherwise reasonable people commit all kinds of unspeakable atrocities. They're simply going along with the crowd, afraid of what others might think if they don't. And that's why what they're doing is an expression of their allegiance 
They're committed to the kingdoms of this world where fear of man and preservation of self are the most powerful motivators. When we're committed to the kingdom of Christ, we stand up for truth. And that means we stand out from the crowds of this world. The Jewish crowd that had gathered to watch the spectacle wasn't any different. It was the same composition of crowd as it was who followed Jesus to hear his teaching. The same composition of crowd that lined the road with palm branches crying, Hosanna. You see how consistent and principled they are because here that crowd cries, give us Barabbas. They've been whipped into a frenzy by the Sanhedrin. And what they do and what they say reveals the king and the kingdom most central to their hearts. And so it is with Jesus. Jesus is fully committed to the kingdom of God. In his humanity, he fears God more than man because he loves his father perfectly and completely. Why doesn't he call on his disciples to resist? Why does he tell Peter to put away his sword? Why does he tell Pilate the truth rather than saying whatever it takes to be set free? Why doesn't he call down a legion of angels to give these Roman soldiers and Jewish crowds what they deserve? It's because what he does is an expression of his allegiance. Jesus is fully committed to the kingdom of God. And if his kingship is what rules our lives, then we will be fully committed as well. With his spirit ruling in our hearts, what's inside produces and therefore matches what's outside. We don't have to scheme and put on masks. It's not so complicated to be loving when your heart is filled with the love of God in Christ. It doesn't take so much work and so much effort. You don't have to put on a display and a show for the fruits of the Spirit to come out when you're abiding in the vine within. Our love for God and others becomes a powerful expression of our allegiance. It's the proof that the Spirit is at work renewing our minds, leading us to the truth, giving us more and more love for it. It gives us the courage to stand up for truth against the lies of the evil one, the perversions of truth that so characterize this present evil age. Our lives should be like our sports jerseys. They should show the world what we're committed to. I see your cap. I see your jersey. I know exactly who you're rooting for. I know what your interests are. What's on the outside tells me about what's inside. What about what you say and what you do? What about how you treat others? What about how you relate to the truth? Do they advertise to the world which king you serve and which kingdom you're a part of? Because we abide with Christ, his spirit is working in us, perfecting us for the day of his coming. So Christians, through our lives, through the way we speak to one another, 
through the way we love, through the way we live. Let's show the world the kind of king we serve.